0: Okay, again, I'm just always so impressed by the guests that we have on The Ortho Show. It's just These are just such remarkable people that just happen to be orthopedic surgeons. We have Neil Shethon, who is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, is an arthroplasty specialist. He has a tremendous passion for education and mentorship. I asked him specifically, you know, why, why academics? Because he wants to share all the things that he's learned and be able to pass it on. He loves taking care of everyone. He knows there's disparity in healthcare, wants to be able to take care of the rich, the poor. It doesn't matter to him being able to provide great care to patients. And one of the other things that he has, which is a great passion for me as well, is mission work. Uh, he and his crew at the uh, University of Pennsylvania with GE Healthcare, are literally building an orthopedic uh, excellence hospital in Tanzania for the people there so that there'll be tremendous health care for them as well. This is a really great deep dive of an episode. I truly enjoyed it. I know you will as well. Dr. Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro.
1: From Medical Media, this is The Ortho Show.
0: hello world dr scott sigmund your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the ortho show podcast where everyone knows that we bring the best of the best we have become the voice of orthopedics in over 25 countries around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of downloads we are so proud of what we have accomplished here today we are super excited to bring on dr neil Sheth, who is an orthopedic surgeon who's a joint replacement specialist He's an associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He's got 17 titles. Let me get through a few of them. Fellowship director for adult reconstruction. He's the chief of orthopedics as well at the Pennsylvania hospital. Neil, it
1: is a pleasure to have you on this show. Scott, thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to this. And I think you guys have done a tremendous job over the last couple of years. Uh, I've seen a lot of your shows and you've actually interviewed a bunch of my friends. And it's just good to hear some people's stories beyond what I might even know, like, you know, in passing. So, yeah, I'm really excited to be here.
0: Yeah, and we're gonna do the same for you today, brother. You are gonna become an Ortho Show alumni. We love it.
1: Fantastic. <laughs>
0: All right, terrific. So everybody knows where we start, and where we like to start is like, like, why, where, and when. Where were you born? How you know? When was a, a doctor? Are there other doctors in the families? Give us the the initial story of, of Neil's home life and family life.
1: Yeah, so I grew up uh, actually in New York. Uh, I was born in Queens uh, and lived there until I was about eight or nine years old before my parents moved out to Long Island. Uh, got an older sister, seven years older than I am, and she had known when she was five years old she wanted to be a doctor, so kind of went down that route. I wasn't really sure going into high school; didn't know what I wanted to do. Ended up going into a, went to boarding school up in Massachusetts to uh, to Brook School, and. Was definitely more okay. Wait, just that. just stop
0: for a second, right? Yeah, okay. I, if yeah. I could literally walk out of my backyard, I yeah. butt Brooks. Oh I'm my like, god, you're literally on, you're
1: like next to Lake Kachichiwik.
0: I am on oh. Lake Kachichiwik. You guys used to come down to my pier and party re- all night long. You know, the pier at the that. end of the thing that's my that's pier.
1: Ridiculous. I had no idea. That's <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That wow. is totally unbelievable. What an incredibly
1: small world. All right. So, yeah. so Brooks, I love
0: that. Keep going. So on. I
1: was mathematically and scientifically inclined, so decided I wanted to go into engineering and wanted to do biomedical engineering and at the same time applied into the combined program at Penn for the Wharton School and engineering and ended up doing that here at Penn. Wasn't until my sophomore year in undergrad that I decided I wanted to go into medicine and specifically it was my first biomechanics class, which is basically everything I do today on biomechanics and thinking about, you know, implants and and biomaterials and all this different stuff that I think created the backbone for what uh, we do today, I think in joint replacement. But as I got a little bit more senior in undergrad, decided I wanted to learn about healthcare finance before becoming a physician. And so I actually went to Wall Street right from undergrad. So I was an investment banker
0: yeah, I, for a couple I of years. I saw that on your CV and I'm yeah. just like, okay, we got we, we to gotta unpack this a little bit because I'm like, I'm definitely getting the vibe. It's engineering, it's orthopedics, it's the bringing the two together, which is joint replacement, obviously, with yeah. all the things that we do. And then I saw that you spent two years at Solomon Smith Barney as a financial analyst in the healthcare investment world. So yeah. tell us about that. I mean, I, I find that fascinating.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think part of it was Being an undergrad student at Penn, Penn is such a pre professional school. And the Wharton School is an extremely powerful place. Very, very type A personality, very, very high achievers uh, who are coming out of that school. But these were all students that spent their summers at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan. And so I had a lot of friends who were doing this while I was sitting there taking organic chemistry lab and taking some other lab. And I couldn't, I really wasn't working at all during the summer other than taking classes. so I never got an opportunity to learn any of the stuff that I was learning in class and actually apply it. And so I thought, you know what, I kind of like finance. I like the strategic management side of things. Why don't I take a little time out to go learn this in the real world? Because at that time, you know, this is the late 90s. I kind of thought I was reading a lot. And I thought I knew a little bit about healthcare business and healthcare, kind of how it works. And I really didn't. I was I just knew whatever I read in a newspaper. Um, and so going to wall street wall street guys love engineers and they love their wharton guys there's no question but they love engineers because finance is simple math and so i loved my time on wall street and it might have been because i knew there was an out right i'd already taken my mcats and done all the prerequisites for what i needed to do to go to med school Uh, but i decided to take time out at age 22 and spend some time like kind of learning a different language which i think at 22 i was way smarter than i am right now because that was probably the best thing that i've ever done
0: all right. So so I just want to, I want to unpack this a little bit more. So did you know when you were going to Solomon that it was going to be a two-year gig and you were going to go back or you weren't sure yet?
1: No. So I hadn't applied to med school yet. I went to Solomon Smith Barney. It's a, usually a two-year analyst position. And At that point, they had offered me a spot to stay on for a third year. And at that point, I had to make a decision. So I applied to med school that first year out, kind of went through the whole process and then had some offers between staying or going back to school and decided to go back to school.
0: All right, so let's let's be clear. So, like, I had a couple of buddies that you know what they went out of Tufts undergrad. They went to Goldman. You know, they retired at the age of forty with right. a gazillion dollars. Right, they push you out at at that point, and you were thirty four before you got your first real job in medicine yeah. to earn a real paycheck. I mean, you know, right. it's
1: yeah. a little, little di- divergence there. No question. I mean, you know, the thing is, and it's funny because guy just literally caught up with half of my class, like at this reunion slash like birthday party for someone in my class. And literally all of my friends are retired now. Right. And they're in their mid forties. But I, uh, you know, I I really liked finance. I liked wall street, but I wasn't sure if I was truly fulfilled in saying, I'm going to take money out of your pocket, put it into somebody else's pocket. And we're taking a commission like in the middle. Yeah, that's great. Um, And so I think when I went back and made the choice to go back to med school, like I went back for the right reason. And so and it was and I was really happy that like it was what I thought I was going to be doing when I was a freshman in college. Like I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. Um, And so it kind of worked out. And the funny thing is, you said, 34. And yeah, I finished up my fellowship at age 35. And my best friend from undergrad called me the day I graduated fellowship. And he goes, I just want you to know that I met you literally half of your life ago, freshman year in college. <laughs> yeah, and you told me you sad. wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. Like you're finally done. And I'm like, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or what you're, you're finally
0: beginning, be- beginning. You're not yeah. done. No, right. but that's, that, you know, it's just such a classic story, but that's the energy. You know, I love the fact that you took some time, you know, you know, they call it a gap year now, two years. It wasn't called a gap year back then, but it right. took some time to really sort of, you know, cross pollinate and learn some ideas and concepts in the business world, which obviously still helps you tremendously in healthcare at this point right now. But then finally you figure it out. It's off to Albany Medical School. Now my partner, Dave Prabilla is about your age. Do you know Dave? He's also
1: an I, arthroplasty? I don't know Dave.
0: Yeah, okay. He's an AUKUS guy too, but he wears a blue sport coat and khaki pants, but he actually graduated Albany. You must've missed you guys by a couple of years, but he's pretty Got close. It. So you're in Albany Medical College and you decide again, there was not wasn't much doubt about it for you. It was going to be worth a p. yep, and you right from the first day, yeah, for sure. And uh, with your background and the things that you were doing, you were going to apply all that engineering uh, background as well.
1: And so you are just drawn to Philadelphia, and you sort of come on back, right? at that point, yeah and- pretty much. I mean, a, I mean, coming to Penn was really more of a feel thing. I mean, I came down to interview. I'd been involved with the university ever since undergrad and leadership stuff, and was still kind of hooked into the school and i came down and interviewed and there was just a gut feeling that i had i'm like this is where i'm supposed to be um and and that that was that ended up being my top choice of where i wanted to train so i locked down. yeah those
0: those cheesesteaks are a draw man you can't it's like it's hard it's It's hard not to give them up up. (laughs) it's it's tough to give them up exactly and and that you know those philadelphia eagle football fans man you got to watch out for those guys they're a tough crowd
1: brutal yeah this is not a good time to be in south philly right now because people are not happy
0: yeah, no, I get. And, you know, the cutlet kids coming your way. So you got to be careful. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> what a great story. But all right. So we'll, we'll stay, we'll continue back into orthopedics is what we do. So, so you're in residency and you know you're doing joint replacement. You actually yep. even spent some time doing some cartilage tissue engineering work and research as well. Yep. And then, and then it's off to fellowship, off to rush, which was, you know, so give some shout outs here along the way. Who are your mentors that really helped yeah. you to decide the pathway for you?
1: You know, so I think that early on when I was in undergrad uh, and definitely when I was on Wall Street and I was making that decision to go back, one of my first mentors was Tom Skulko from HSS, who has replaced both of my mom's knees, replaced my dad's knee. I've known him since I was 19. Ironically, we just got my mom's 30-year total knee x-ray like two months ago.
0: No way. And, How's it going? Yeah, so, I mean,
1: and my mom is like Yoda. She's like, you know, 4 foot 10. <laughs> they had three sizes back in 1993, but yeah, she's got a little osteolysis, but my mom just turned 84 this weekend and it's literally been 30 years with Well, the, the force runs <laughs>
0: strong through through your mother, you know, for yeah. sure. So the uh, new, the new replacement's holding on. I love it.
1: Yeah, so I mean, so uh, he was one of my first mentors and then I came to Penn as a resident and Charles Nelson was sort of my mentor. And I really actually came to Penn to be a tumor surgeon. And uh, our chairman at the time was a tumor surgeon. I was really interested in the biology of it, but I wanted to do these big cases, and these big reconstructions. And I got on a Charles Nelson service. and I'm like, man, I was like, this guy's really good at doing these big reconstructions. I said, why do I care if the bone's destroyed by tumor or infection or osteolysis? Like at the end, once that you know destroyed bone has been removed, reconstruction's kind of the same, you know concepts. And that's what got me into Arthur and really kind of more interested on the revision side. And that's where, luckily, we didn't even have a match when, I, when we went into fellowship. So that was a conversation as a PGY3 with Aaron Rosenberg and Josh Jacobs and Craig Delavalle and Wayne Paproska. They're like, all right, like, it's yours if you want it. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? The fellowship or like the rest of your sandwich? You know, I'm like, what, like, what <laughs> it was so nonchalant. Um, yeah. But then I had a tremendous time in, in Chicago and had great mentors. I mean, all of those guys, Rich Berger and Aaron Rosenberg and Wayne Poprosky and and Josh Jacobs. And we we were really fortunate to even trade with George Galante where we, we got to cover clinic with him one, uh, one day a month. And you'd see these people who have 30 years out from a total hip. And, you know, he's looking at x-rays and what he could see on a plain film was tremendous on these little, little lines of bone and like where the stress response is in the cup. And you're like, yeah, I mean it was an amazing amazing place to train. Um very very yeah, high Rush, energy and just yeah, just world-class leaders in everything that they do.
0: Everything they do. I mean Rush yeah. has just got just a phenomenal orthopedic department across the board and yeah, every time we have uh, one of our alumni come come on from Rush, it's always just uh, accolades and and just amazing, you know, time and experience uh, as well. And Chicago, what a great city also to spend yeah. time in. Although you're probably You weren't spending a lot of time out on the miracle mile. You were probably taking care of patients and making rounds like we, like they used to do in the old days. Right. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) No more rounds anymore. Everybody goes home. How about that? Like how amazing is it? How arthroplasty has changed in such a small window of time.
1: Yeah. I I mean, it's, I think we've done some really tremendous work in the last decade and a half on, you know, a lot of the stuff that you do, but really getting people preoperatively optimized and really focusing on the components that they're going to face after surgery. Like the surgery itself may not have changed that much, right? The fundamentals and fundamentals and principles are kind of the same. We've got some technology that can make us do it a little bit faster, a little bit easier, a little bit more reproducible surgery. But at the end of the day, like I don't think that much has changed on that realm. It's all the other stuff that I think synergistically has had a much bigger impact for patients.
0: Yeah. Pain management, nutrition. I'll throw a shout out to MEND, who's one of our sponsors for perioperative nutrition. All of those things are are really what makes a huge difference for the outcome for the patient.
1: Yeah. It's nice to see. So, right, training with Rich Berger in 2009, 2010, and he's been doing outpatient joints since 2004.
0: Which is amazing.
1: Right. And, and five years deep, I'm a fellow now and I've never seen anything like this because I'm still used to people staying a minimum of three days in the hospital, if yes. not longer after a joint replacement. And then go to rehab so,
0: for a week or two.
1: Right. Exactly. So um, it was amazing to get indoctrinated into that. A lot of skepticism is like, well, I'm not sure I'm going to be doing outpatient joints right away when I start. And then all of a sudden, the next decade, Everything's being pushed that way. But it was very helpful, I think, to have lived in that for some time, have access to those kind of mentors that you can reach out and say, hey, listen, as I start this at Penn, like, what do I need to really focus on before it became fully mainstream, right? And now I think you can do this in most centers across the country, much more reproducibly and safely for patients, right? And I think patients like, I mean, all the data shows that patients like it much better. Go home. Sit on yeah, your you, own couch and enjoy your own food, right? Yeah, yeah. no,
0: absolutely. I mean, why do you want to be in the big white building with all those sick people, the bacteria and yeah. stuff, you know, right. recover at home? It's interesting. Today, I got a bulletin. There's so much virus running around that they won't even let anybody be admitted to the hospital right now. The, the beds are all full and they don't mm. even have post-operative beds. So wow. even all these, you know, since post-pandemic, even more reasons for for people to want to recover at home. So, so, you know, so I love it. Again, you know, you're the classic underachiever. You didn't learn enough at Rush, so you decided to go to Germany for a little bit and learn something
1: over there. That must have been a couple cool months. It was. The interesting reason, the reason that happened was because George Galante said to me as a fellow and, you know, probably about three, four months into my fellowship, they had decided they wanted to keep me on at Rush after my fellowship. And unfortunately, they had just built this brand new $80 million building. Their overhead went up and they're like, we're kind of on a freeze and we can't hire someone. But during that time, when I was talking to them, George Galante pulled me aside and said, Neil, he goes, I think you should go to either England or Germany or Australia and go learn how to cement because we don't do any cemented stuff anymore. And I said something stupid to, to him, like, well, Dr. Galante, if you didn't come up with cementless acetabular components in the late 80s, I would have learned how to cement like here. I was <laughs> like, I'm just kidding, sir. I was like, I'll go wherever you want me to go. <laughs> so they had set me up to go to the endo clinic And um it was phenomenal. I mean, it was great because I actually learned the way I cement today is still the way they taught me a decade plus ago. And those guys were so good. I mean, you see these 30 year x-rays with these beautiful cement mantles and I'm like, wow, I'm like, this definitely can work if you do it right. Uh, they're also just a tremendous infection center. So there's a lot of different things that I learned there that I brought back, uh, especially when I came back to Penn to, to be able to get um, some of our protocols in place for infection. And uh, it's just, it's also afforded me to make some lifelong friendships. I mean, there are so many international fellows crossing paths like while I was there that become with friends all over the world that are now invi- you know inviting me to their conferences and some international collaborations, which are great. So yeah, no, it was a great time to be there and the right time to do it.
0: And it's amazing, you know, in orthopedics, one thing that we do well is we have a tendency to to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And we think something new, like you know, the threaded acetabular cup, you know, that was just a complete failure, right? But the idea of learning from the greats, and then these things were longevity and arthroplasty is so important, right? Because, you know, you know, for an ACL or a rotator cuff, you know, we don't, you do x-rays later on if they get arthritis, but you know, what you do is right there on those radiographs and that stays with the patient forever. And so, yeah. you know, having options to do both and, and keeping all of those arrows in your quiver really makes you a true master surgeon when you have lots of options. All right. So, so something happened though. I think you got on the wrong plane because you went
1: to Ortho Carolina for two years. What, you know, <laughs> what yeah, happened? You know- so yeah so i so i finished up fellowship the, the chicago thing kind of fell through it was tough to figure out because i loved chicago as a city loved all my mentors was really excited to be a part of that whole group um but clearly the finances didn't work out there so i had to kind of look at some stuff at that time Penn had offered me to come back and Penn was going through a little bit of a transition new chairman there were a bunch of people who were leaving Penn at that time and i'm like this may not be the right time and so i looked at a couple of things and i thought ortho carolina was a phenomenal outfit private group, great mentorship, and uh, went down there. And yeah, it was great. I mean, great bunch of guys. I got busy doing a ton of revisions. It's just, it didn't feel like home. Like I was not, I'm not a Southern guy. Like I'm not from Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, And like they, I don't know if they were ready for like a New York guy with my level of speed, right? Like I was just, this is not going to work for me. And so, you know, after about 14 months or so, a little over a year, I kind of talked to my mentors back at home and talked to our chairman here. And they're like, we're going to make a spot for you to come back home because like you should probably be here. Um, And so, yeah, I came back to Penn in 2012. So it's 11 years ago now. And um, and it's been the nice thing here, Scott, is that 15 of the guys that trained with me as a resident who are either a senior as a chief when I was a resident or a junior when I was a chief are all back at Penn. So we've been here for a decade plus together. And it's it's a little bit of a camaraderie that you can't create. Um, without having all these people that kind of grew up together learning the language of orthopedics. But I know if the the shoulder guy's on call and, a, and an infected total knee comes in, he's going to call me. And if I'm in town, Andy, I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. It is better for the patient. It is easier for me because I do this all the time versus if a proximal humerus fracture comes in, I can fumble my way through this. But listen, you're around. Please take care of this. And the nice thing is there's no feeling between us that we're dumping on anything on it. Just listen. This is better for the patients. Better for our residents and fellows for their education. Like, it's going to be faster if you do it with your team. Like, just take care of this, um, which is a really, really nice thing, right? I mean, yeah, great
0: esprit de corps. Yeah, and, you know, I think this is great for our young orthopedic, you know, listeners out there, residents or or even medical students who are thinking about this. You know, you know, think carefully about where you're going to go in your first job in the process, but never you know, but, but keep things open, maintain your mm-hmm. relationships. And, you know, eventually, maybe the job doesn't open up right away, it may not be the right time. But if you keep the relationships going, then good things can happen for you. Um, which is sort good. of a it's a it's a good segue, Neil, about why, you know, why you chose the path of academics, right? There's a lot of options that are out there. And so it seems to me like you're in a really great spot. But for again, for our young orthopedic listeners out there, tell us, you know, why you have a passion for academics and where you are.
1: Yeah, you know, so I think I, I look back to some of my mentors through residency and through fellowship, and I felt this obligation to kind of give back, right? Those guys, uh, a lot of them took time out to teach me. I didn't learn all what, I, what I've learned in reading it in a book, right? I didn't learn it just on watching a video. Um, and I had a lot of respect for my mentors who trusted me to take care of their patients, trusted that I was going to do the prerequisite work to be prepared for a case, right? And taking care of the patients. And, you know, I had the trust that I was going to do the right thing when it came down to it. But I'll tell you what I learned actually in residency that made me want to go into academics is watching some of my mentors teach me something on a Monday because I was struggling with something. And they were never happier than on Thursday when they saw me teach that to somebody else. Right. And it was the legacy of like, wow, this is like what's worthwhile. And that was more worth it to them than a bigger paycheck, right? If you're not spending all this time in academics. And that is what's actually fed me forward. Like I love having medical students and residents and fellows at multiple levels um, that are always around. Right? I don't have a minute to myself. Um, The other thing is that I'm really fortunate I'm at a university where I can collaborate with the entire university. Every single school, I've got some of the most brilliant minds on the planet around me in what they do. And if there are products that I'm passionate about, there are people who say, yeah, I'm happy to help you out. Can't do that in private practice. Um, and so I think that those were the reasons that really resonated to me. And look, if I really wanted money, I would have stayed on Wall Street. And if I really wanted that, then I made a very, very poor choice at age 24. right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But I, I think one of the other mentors got John Estrahi who was um, a mentor uh, here, one of our head of trauma, he goes, you know, at some point, you got to figure out how much money you need to make. If you need to buy a new Ferrari every single year, you better make a lot of money. Otherwise, you're going to be unhappy. Figure out how much money you need to make in order to be happy. And then at that point, you make decisions based off of what's important to you, not because of a financial like goal. And that was very sound advice. But I've also been very much like that because I left Wall Street, nothing to do with money, but more based off of what I was really interested in based on passion. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I think I would be really bored in private practice if I just went to work and I had no one that was interested in hearing from me, no one interested in what we were doing, not interested in complex cases and, and taking care of patients, um, you know, that are potentially not even going to have access to care because they're not going to fit that outpatient mold. They're not going to have care in a surgery center. And, uh, it's nice when I have like a two week slot when it's those cases, but I think I get a little. I get a little peeve and I'm like, I, I kind of want to take care of those, some of those people that still need care that I, that, you know, we can still do with our team. And I think residents love that. They want to see, still see that in their training.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a few bullet points that I think of as you were talking first and foremost, finding happiness, right? How, how, how important is that? Right. I mean, does money buy happiness. No, you, you have to have passion, the things that make you happy you have to do every day. Um, the disparity in the health systems that are available at this point, right? And so the I love the fact that you want to take care of the people, you know, regardless of their insurance or income or zip code, uh, color of their skin, which is fantastic. Um, I think that uh, you know evidence-based medicine is so important, but yet experience-based medicine can never be forgotten. The things that you've learned from your mentors, you keep in your brain and your hard drive, and then you share that as it goes down. I mean, I think that's a, as good as it gets. And then you brought up another point, which I think is a great segue into something else that I want to talk about,, uh, which is another, you know important project for you, and that's your mission work. Uh, mm-hmm. I've just returned from Honduras with one World Surgery last week. We had Beautiful. a fantastic, amazing brigade, the top anesthesiologist, uh, Teresa bowling and and uh, Marsha Bergen, who joined us, and Michael Redler, who's the the leader, and Ann Murthy. just just an amazing right. group that went down and gave amazing health care to the people of Honduras who need it the most. And so I was reading through your CV that you're leading a team in, you know, in Tanzania to build an orthopedic center of excellence. And one of the things that you brought up, which I, I want you to share about is, is your relationships through Penn that you're using to help create this, uh, the collaboration with Wharton and the Leonard Davis you know, Institute of Economics and GE Healthcare. So Tell our listeners all about it, because this is what we yeah. do. Yeah, I,
1: I mean, so, you know, Scott, this is what I spend all of my time working on outside of clinical work. And uh, this is truly because of one of my mentors uh, here when I was a resident, Enio Carrick He was a, a foot and ankle surgeon, um, Nigerian descent, trained here as a resident, uh, and then was on faculty here for 13 years. And he was my assigned mentor when I came to Penn as an intern. They assigned you to some faculty member. I didn't want to be a foot and ankle surgeon, but I'm like, all right, sir, like you're my guy. And he used to take me out to dinner like two or three times a year. And we'd talk about life and rotations and research and career goals and great. And uh, it was 2005, sitting with him at one of these dinners. And I'm like, sir, I was like, I just heard from one of the nurses at the the trauma center that we're taking some hardware out of someone's ankle. And like, we need to re-sterilize this for you. Like, what, what are you doing with this hardware? He goes, oh, well, I go to Nigeria four or five times a year. I work with the same group of people. I work at the same hospital. I'm like, wow. And I was like, well, sir, I'd love to be able to go with you one day. And he goes, you know, he's like, in 13 years, no residents ever asked me to go before. But he goes, I'm going to take you when you're a little bit more senior. Like as a PGY2, you can't really do anything, right? So he goes, why don't we wait till you're a PGY4 on my service? And he goes, and then we'll go together. So this is January 2007. We go for 10 days and it was life changing. I mean, every other day you're seeing 300 patients in clinic and every other day you're operating till midnight and and, you know, he's like, listen, we're going to run two rooms. You raise your hand when you need help. And I was like, I'd make an incision. And I'm like, can somebody get Okereke? Because <laughs> yeah, grandma broke her ankle like nine years ago and it is healed in this position. Yeah. But by day two, all of a sudden, right, like I'm, I've am i got my exposure done. Osteotomy is done. And I've recorrected the ankle. I got a plate on with some clamps and he's poking his head and he goes, yeah, doc, go ahead. Like, you know, this is what you need to do. And that experience changed my life because on the way home, enio Keraki said something to me that did not register until years later. And he said, Neil, he's like, what's wrong? And I said, nothing, sir. And he goes, no, nah. he's like, something looks like it's bothering you. I said, well, I was like, where were we just now? He said, I just saw all these people. I was like, am I going to forget tomorrow night, like where I just was? I was like, because I'm on call at HUP tomorrow night. I'm going to run around with plaster around and do the best I can to help take care of patients. And he goes, Neil, he's like, you weren't there for yourself i don't know. I was like, what are you talking about? like, I'm not talking about me. He goes, no. He goes, you're going to come back and your friends in your residency program are going to pat you on the back and say, wow, what a good guy you are, right? He goes, because you went to West Africa with Okereke and wow, it's great. He's like, you were not there to pat yourself on the back. You were not there for yourself. He's like, you were there to help those people take care of their patients, right? The provider's there. And he goes, anything you do in the global health realm has got to be systems-based, I didn't understand what that meant until 2012. Unfortunately, my chief year, 2008, he passed away. He had a heart attack uh, in Nigeria and they ran out of the medication to resuscitate him. And Charles Nelson and him were very also very close. And I got asked to give part of the eulogy at his memorial service, a 2,700 person memorial service in South Jersey. And that day I had this huge overwhelming feeling that I need to continue his life's work, which was changing systems, not just you know doing surgery, uh, in random spots, but like, let's work on a small area where you can change systems. Forge, I went to Nigeria a couple of years after he passed away, I actually went with Rich Berger's, uh, uh, scrub tech because she was Nigerian and knew about all the stuff that happened to O'Kariki, and we went over and, and that was probably more of a personal trip for me because we did some surgeries. It was great, but ran into some safety issues. And I'm like, I'm not sure Nigeria is the right country for me, but I got invited by Larry Doerr 2012 to go to Tanzania. And that was the first time I'd ever been to Tanzania. And fell in love with the country and the people the first second that I arrived there. And um, long story short, basically what happened was we did this trip for a week. We did 50 surgeries and everyone's high-fiving and I didn't feel so great. And I wasn't sure why. And I couldn't articulate why. Well, I went back eight months later, took one of our chief residents, and I went to see the surgeon whose hospital we were working in. And this guy said to me, very simply, he goes, Neil, he goes, we're not very happy when you guys come here. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't mean to be disrespectful. You guys are very good. And you're very fast. You're taking care of a lot of people in a short period of time. But of the 50 cases you did, four knee replacements got infected. One hip is chronically dislocating. I don't know how to do a revision hip. I don't know how to take care of an infected total knee. And I, now these people I actually really get sick. I don't know what to do with them. But what he said to me after that was even more jarring. He said, after you guys left, I had no business for three months. People came to this hospital to get free surgery from U.S. surgeons. No one's coming here to pay an African surgeon until they realize that you're not coming back anytime soon. So for three months, he had trouble feeding his family as an orthopedic surgeon in Tanzania. I realized in that one statement, I was like, we need to do a different model. Like, this is not the right way to do it. So I spent the next several years kind of coming up with a plan. We started working with a university over in Tanzania. They became adjunct professors at Penn, very, very long collaboration since 2015. Med students have gone over every year, publishing a lot of data, doing a lot of research. And the biggest thing I'll tell you, Scott, is that before even coming up with any plan of what I thought we should do, I sat down with them and I said, why don't you guys tell me from the inside out, what are the three major barriers that you have to delivering care in your country? Doesn't matter what I think, doesn't matter what I think you should do, but you tell me what the three biggest problems are and let me see if I can come up with a plan or a model that will address this for you. So that's where all of our relationships started with G Healthcare Africa and across the entire campus. Everyone's happy to help. Whether it's the Wharton School creating a business plan and a business model for us, or Leonard Davis Institute of Economics creating some economic model to quantify some aspect of this, uh, the design of the environment in the architecture school for creating a building structure. I mean, it's been amazing uh, the collaborative nature across this campus that people who don't even know me are like, hey, listen, you're busier than I than I am. Why don't I come to your office and I'll wait for you in between cases and we can talk about this. Um, So it's been a, a very, very long project. Unfortunately, COVID definitely took a huge toll on us uh, because we had the money actually set aside to build and break ground uh, on the hospital for 2021. But obviously the money had gotten kind of repurposed But thankfully, we've been able to pivot with a private group that actually built a brand new hospital for us in the last few months. And so now we have 30 different schools around the world, most of them from the U.S., but also South America, Europe and Asia that will donate a week a year. So your work is covered by somebody when you when you leave. Um, And that way, I think we can really help focus on the people who live there all the time. Let me bring you fellowships to you. Don't leave Tanzania. Stay at home. We're just going to give you a sterile environment to work in where the infection rate is low and we're going to get you implants and we're not going to donate implants. We have implants actually from a company that offers implants for one ninth the cost. And they're the same thing that I put in here on the eighth floor of Pennsylvania hospital, but we are going to stock the hospital with implants and it's a cross subsidized model where patients who can pay or patients who have insurance will cross pollinate and take care of the patients that can't pay. Cause we're all volunteers. We don't get paid.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's just just incredible disparity in healthcare around the world. Um, you know, Michael Redler's fam- famous quote that we always talk about when we go down to One World is, you know, teach a man to fish and and he yeah. can eat for life. And so, you know, the idea is to train the doctors while they're there as well. These amazing doctors from around the world that come in, and then you're getting continuous care for these patients that need it the most, uh, yeah. and getting world class care. You know, that's what's so yeah. great, especially if you're building a really nice facility that has a lot of the state-of-the-art equipment. And uh, I think a lot of doctors don't want to go on missions because they're, they're worried or concerned that the work that they're going to be able to do is different than what they do at home, right? Sure. You spend time to become a master and an expert. You know, I don't want—I don't know how to do a non-union of a such and such, but I can do a great ACL. So line me up, you know, 14 kids that need ACLs and we'll take care of that for you, you know? And I right. think that's what you're trying. It sounds to me like that's what you're building as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, and the thing is that, you know, my big thing is I think talking to that guy uh, Jeffrey Kabira back in 2013. It was a decade ago now, but I thought about it. Like, if I do a surgery today and I'm leaving town tonight, and a patient has a complication, like I feel terrible, and I've got partners here that can take care of anything, and I still feel bad. Well, last thing I want to do is go to anyone's other country, into their environment, and say, "Let me make more burden for you in an effort to help." We're just trying to do the best that we can, but. I never thought about it that way, right? I never, and the thing is that some of those responses that he had or his reactions, those are just questions we've never asked, right? And there, and so, um, you know, I'll tell you that the cool thing for me that, I mean, the, the really nice thing for me is that I'm, in my mind, like I'm able to continue to fulfill this obligation to my mentor who passed away. But the other thing is that if I look back, this project is everything I've learned in my entire life. Between... Biomedical engineering between finance and orthopedic surgery—it's in one project, and I get to collaborate with so many people around the co- uh, the campus. All these different companies, like whether it's G Healthcare Africa, the CEO of G Healthcare Africa, has become like a close personal friend. Like we like vacation with his family, sixteen-year-old daughter comes to visit us and like visit my wife for like her sixteenth birthday. Because so we become very very close. And, you know, I asked him, I said, I was like, why are you so interested in this project? I'm sure you guys get tons of projects every month. He goes, you're the only guy that has data. You didn't ask for anything until you spent five years with the university actually quantifying what the burden of disease is and quantifying what are the gaps in the system that you're trying to fix. There's a lot of diaspora that leave Africa and say, oh, I want to build a hospital in Ethiopia because I've been gone for 25 years and I feel bad they want to do something for my country. I understand that there's a reason why you feel that way, but you have no idea what's happened in your country in the last 25 years in a specific system. So it's been, um, it, it truly is, it's been a tremendous part of my career. And again, I don't think I could have given as much time and effort as I give to it without the support of like my chairman, Scott Levin, who said, this is a part of who you are. This is an extremely important piece of work that is important to you. And if I give you too much to do on the clinical side, that's going to take away from that. He goes, that would be a travesty. But I, I can't focus on that if he doesn't have that support for me. And I think it would be hard to do in a non-academic practice.
0: Yeah, you know, you're you're in practice for how long now? How many years?
1: Uh, starting my 14th year now.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, let's say you go 25 years, you know, I'm, I'm about I'm 25 years in you can see as many patients in a day as you possibly can. You can operate on as many possible patients as you can, but it's still a very small drop in the bucket of all the people around Mm -hmm. the planet. So if you can do what you're doing here in Tanzania and create this, you're going to be able to help to provide care for patients. You'll never meet its ability to scale your mastership and expertise and sort of using these relationships. So kudos to you, brother. Really, really a great story. So Neil, what, you know, what a pleasure it is to have had this time to speak with you. Your your passion is palpable for education, for mentorship. Obviously, your mission work it just it's just a part of who you are. I want to thank you for your contributions to the world of arthroplasty. You've still got so much more to do and give. But really, what a pleasure it is to have you on the show. And want to
1: thank you for all that you do. Scott, thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time, and yeah, thanks for the conversation. And uh, it's always great to see you. And uh... Wishing you and the family a uh, happy holiday and healthy uh, healthy New Year. And hopefully I'll see you soon, early next year. Yeah, I'm sure
0: we'll see each other soon for sure. Excellent. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of The Ortho Show. Until next time.